0: His name is Joshua Bell. He's probably uh, the greatest violinist on planet Earth uh, right now. Uh, he has been a, a prodigy. He was filling concert halls even when he was five or six years old. Uh, people pay $250 to $350 just for a, for a seat to uh, watch him, to hear him um, masterfully play uh, the violin. A number of years ago, he put on some plain clothes and went to the Washington, D.C. Metro train station. And he got out his $4 million Stradivarius and he played music. In that train station, that was so technically complicated, that was so aesthetically beautiful, that that fills concert halls, and he played that in the metro train station, and was largely ignored. Person after person, just the the odd person, you just put a a little bit of money in his violin case. He was largely ignored. There was an article in the Washington newspaper about this stunt, and seven years later, they announced that the same Joshua Bell was coming to that train station, and he didn't just go in the little vestibule at the, one of the lower entrances. He went up into the main foyer of the train station, and this is just part, I couldn't get the whole picture of the crowd that was there. You know, sometimes brilliance and beauty and excellence and glory is—it's just—it's there, staring you right in the face in the mundane of everyday life, and we don't take the time to recognize it. If you're if you're here today and and, and you don't really believe in God or believe in Jesus, then that that's completely true of you because from, from the sky to the, uh, to, to, to the lakes and rivers to even looking at your own body and all of the beauty and the complexity of creation, it's, the existence of God is staring you in the face and yet we just continually walk by. But those of us who are people of faith, I mean, we can be guilty the same way. We can be preoccupied with whatever ridiculous thing is on our phone or or get distracted by by work or by wealth or, or by pursuing this or that or whatever we think is more important than what is truly beautiful and truly glorious. Even those of us who are devoted to church we, we, we can be like Martha, doing all of this work and, and neglecting actually sitting at the feet of Jesus. We can come Sunday after Sunday and just walk by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so our, our aim for the next few weeks, we're, we're doing a short series. It's called this. It's called It's All About Jesus. And it is introducing to some and reminding for others that he's here right now, that there is beauty and there is glory and there is excellence like like nothing else, and that we can't just walk by and just go and do church or just go and live our lives. We, we want to radically reorient how we are thinking about everything that we do in light of the fact that Jesus is here and that Jesus is king and that it's all about Jesus. The beautiful passage that Josie read to us was written by a man named Paul, who for a, a, a a long period of his life, walked right by Jesus and just thought that he was another regular man, another religious teacher. And then he had a radical encounter with Jesus and he started going around from city to city and opening other people's eyes to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And he visited this town called Colossae. He told them about Jesus. Many of them believed in Jesus. Now he's writing them this letter because he's concerned that they've got their eyes off of what matters most. They've forgotten about what is most important. And so he's writing them this letter to remind them that it's all about Jesus. And so we're going to, we're going to, really take away three things uh, this morning about Jesus that, that Paul wanted the church at Colossae to understand. And as Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what we need to understand as well. It, it's basically that, that Jesus is God and, and, and that he's, he's God in these three ways. The first one is this, is that Jesus is the God of creation. Jesus is the God of creation, Look with me at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. That phrase image should remind us of the original creation story, right? Remember Adam and Eve. This is the whole reason why there is dignity and sanctity for human life. It's because human beings are created in the image of God. But when it talks about Jesus, it doesn't say that Jesus is in the image of God. It says Jesus is the image of God. There's a huge difference between that. Adam and Eve, in, in, in some way, represented who God is as his creatures. But Jesus is the exact representation of who God is because Jesus is God. I got three of my four sons Sitting in, the, in the, the third row here, you could look at them and you could see in them the image of Ted. You, you could see, uh, unfortunately, guys, I'm sorry, some family resemblance. But when you look at them, you, that, they aren't me. The image is there, they're in the image, but they aren't the image. This is the, take it or leave it, this is the image of Ted. Jesus is the image of God. One of Jesus' disciples was getting kind of confused, and he was, he was telling Jesus, could you just show us the Father? And, and Jesus told him in John 14, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus came to show us what God is like. If you want to know, does God care about the poor and the marginalized? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He cares about the poor and the marginalized. If, if, if you want to know, if, if if God cares about who you sleep with or who you marry, look at Jesus. Jesus will tell you what God thinks about marriage or about sexuality. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the image, the image of God. Then it says that he's the first Born. Now your your friendly neighborhood, Jehovah's Witness, will will like to talk about the idea of image and compare that to Adam and Eve and say that Adam that Jesus was like no, we, we already said that he's not in the image, he is the image. And your friendly neighborhood, Jehovah's Witness, will also want to talk to you about Jesus being born, that he's the firstborn, that he's a creature, not creator. And I guess on a superficial reading, that that might make sense to some people, except the fact that firstborn doesn't have to do with birth sequence, but with family status. A, A number of times in the Bible, let me give you a couple of examples. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel, Jacob, was actually the secondborn. Esau was the firstborn, but in status... Israel was the firstborn. David, who was the eighthborn in his family, his poor mother. Seven sons, and then an eighth one comes along. God says in Psalm 89, I will make him, David, the firstborn. It's about status. It's about who has the right to inherit all that belongs to the family. Jesus is the firstborn. Everything belongs to him. And if that understanding of the usage of the word firstborn weren't enough, the next verse explains why. So often in the Bible, it's just the small little words that make all of the difference. Look at verse 16. It begins with the word for. This is is explaining how he is the firstborn. This is the reason why he's the firstborn. Why is he the firstborn? For by him all things were created. If he were created, then everything could not be created by him. He is the firstborn because he's the one who created everything. It all belongs to him because he made it all. He's the firstborn of all creation. In heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The, 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 vis- the visible world, everything physical, the invisible world, everything spiritual, he created And again, notice the small words, the prepositions. They were created by him, in verse 16, through him, in verse 16, and for him. Everything has been created by Jesus, and everything is all about Jesus. He's the designer. Bombardier, the great Canadian company that builds uh, airplanes, one of our friends works there. We went to an open house at at Bombardier down in, in North York. And we're looking at all of these planes, different stages of construction. We're learning about how they build planes. And no one ever ever walks around the complex of Bombardier and looks at these planes and says, this is all the result of an impersonal process over millions and millions of years. No, you look at the turbine engine. I mean, you look at the hinges on the door. You look at everything about it. It's screaming, Designer! There were aerospace engineers all over this thing. There was a whole team of people who put all of this together. When we see evidence of design, the the, the logical conclusion is that there is a designer. I'm just talking about an airplane. I'm not talking about the the planets, the stars, the 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 this, it, all Everything that we see on this beautiful planet of ours, it all points to a designer. Everything was made by him. But it's more than that. It says everything was made for him. Everything has a purpose. You see, Jesus is the, is the son of the father and there is the Holy Spirit. There is a, there is a trinity, which means tri-unity, a triple unity, and And God has always existed three in one. There has always been a loving relationship in all of eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everything that was created was created out of the overflow of that love. That's why the Bible can say that God is love. Not that God loves, but that God, his very essence is love. His very essence is relationship. If the world is created by God, and if God is love, then that gives us a framework to understand why we love one another. Because if you remove God from the equation, the only explanation for why Calvin loves Laurieann and Laurieann loves Calvin and why they both are overflowing with love for Gabrielle the only explanation apart from God is that there are certain chemicals or hormones that promote the reproduction of our species in order for it to continue to propagate. No, 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 no. When you go to a wedding, when you witness a child dedication, you, there's something cosmic that's happening. There's something beautiful. There's, there's meaning In our love for one another. If you don't believe in God. Then there's no purpose. There's no meaning. For loving one another. But the love that we have for one another. Again is more evidence of who God is. Everything was created by him. And through him. And for him. Your life is one of those things that has been created. Your life was created by God. And your life. Exists. You are on this planet for God's purposes. Are you living for him? Or are you living for yourself? Verse 17 says, he is before all things. He needs to be first. He is first. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the God of creation. This is important for us to understand. Because uh, Christians need to understand our responsibility when it comes to the, to the environment. Now, listen, don't plug your ears on me here for a second. Environmentalism in our culture has become its own religion, right? It has its own apocalypse, and it has its own prophets, and it has its own morality. You've got to buy this kind of a car. your straws need to be made out of this certain substance. you need to do this or do that. And there's these different ways of showing that you're a good person or that you're virtuous. It has all of the characteristics of a religion. When environmentalism looks to the future, it becomes religious and kind of weird. For a Christian, our commitment to the environment doesn't look forward. it looks backward. It recognizes that every tree and every blade of grass and every creature on the planet was created for him and through him and by him. So oftentimes it's misunderstood that, Christianity, that Christians say, well, it's all going to burn and it doesn't really matter. Who cares about the environment? No, no, no. Christians care about the environment. We ought to care about the environment. We're entrusted to steward that which was made for him and through him and by him. Him, Not by looking forward to some doomsday environmental apocalypse. We know what we're looking forward to, the new heavens and the new earth. But we are looking backward to all that God has created. So he's the God of creation. Secondly, he's the God of reconciliation. The God of reconciliation. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, that reference to the church there, it's a little little bit jarring, right? I mean, we're thinking about mountains and vast skies and stars and planets and the extent of the cosmos, and then just in the next breath, now he's talking about small groups of people singing corny songs and having potlucks. Like, doesn't it seem a little bit strange? He's the creator of all things, and he's the head of the church. Seems a little bit strange. The, the, the word church there, it's, it's, it's in, in Greek, it's ekklesia. Ecclesia uh, uh, comes from the verb to call, and ek exit, that's where we get the term exit from, means to be called out. The church are those who have been Called out. Jesus called his disciples to come and follow him. We have been called out to live differently from the world around us. And Jesus is the head of this group of people who are living this countercultural way of life. And, and the church here is described as a body, and Jesus as the head. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. I'm getting to the age right now where my head thinks something and my body says no. My shoe gets untied. I think my head thinks I'm just going to bend over and tie my shoe. And my body says no, that's not happening. My body does not always cooperate with my head. That's a big problem. One of the reasons why we're doing this series is so that we, the body, get in sync with the head. So that we're not off doing, you know, whatever the body thinks the body ought to do. Rather than listening and responding to our head. There, There's there's some people who call themselves Christians. They're like, you know what, I believe in Jesus and I follow Jesus, but I, I don't have anything to do with the church. That's like... You you can't just love someone's head and not also accept their body. That sounds like a permanent you know zoom call. That's a nightmare. <laughs> you you can't select someone's head like a headless body. It's it's dead. So, so if you're following Jesus, if you're focusing on Jesus, it's not going to take long before the church comes up. So as much as this is a series all about Jesus, here's the church. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, there's this incredible vision that John has of Jesus. And he's got white hair and a golden sash and fireball eyes. And, and then it says, Jesus, it says that Jesus is standing among the lampstands. And so many metaphors in Revelation don't get explained. What does that mean? Or what does this symbol mean? Were his, fire, were his eyes really like fire? But the one bit of explanation that's crystal clear at the end of Revelation chapter 1, it says that the lampstand are the churches. John has this vision of Jesus, and where's Jesus? He's at church. Jesus is at church every Sunday. But do we walk by him? Do we recognize that he's here? Do we expect him to be here? Or do we think that he's somewhere else? If we're going to focus on Jesus, we're going to end up focusing on the church. And he is to be preeminent. That means that he is to be first, that it's all about him He is the God of reconciliation. Look with me at verse 19. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's fully God. He's not just a creature. He's fully God. The fullness of God dwelled in him. He's fully God. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's fully God, and yet he sheds blood. He's fully human. He's the God of reconciliation. Notice how Jesus accomplished this reconciliation by making peace by the blood of of his cross. Reconciliation is a relationship term. There was a breakdown in the in our relationship with God. And Jesus made peace in that relationship by dying on a cross. Jesus was not really like Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell was just ignored. Jesus was not just ignored. Humanity murdered Jesus. Humanity, so if Jesus tells us Who God is. If he's the image of God, he shows us what God is like. The human response to Jesus tells us what humanity is like. And humanity took one look at at a God who wants to have authority over the way that we live. A God who wants to tell us that there is a standard of morality that all of us fall short of. A God like that, no thank you. Joshua Bell was ignored. Jesus Christ was murdered. Murdered. Executed, crucified on a cross. But by doing that, he made peace. Verse 21 says, and you, this is talking about us. You who were once alienated. The relationship was broken. God was way over there and we were way over here. We were alienated from God. Not only that, we were hostile in mind. Just like that hostile mob that put Jesus on a cross. The hostile religious leaders. The hostile political leaders. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. Deep down inside of every single human being is this wish, this desire that God was dead. And that we could be in charge. That's what made Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And every time we commit an evil deed. Every time that we don't love the way that we ought to love. That we don't care about others the way that we ought to care. Every time that we open our mouth to say something hurtful. Every time that we open our mind to an evil thought or an evil deed. We are saying I want to be in charge. We're hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh. He was fully human, and he fully died by his death. And here's, here's what it says next. It says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, something happens that, that's quite incredible When someone stops and looks at Jesus, when someone recognizes the the true beauty and the glory of all that he is and all that he has accomplished, something incredible happens because you look at the cross and you recognize that should have been me. I I should have been killed like that, but he has died in my place. And when a person places their faith in Jesus, when they ask Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, Christians are not perfect people. They're just forgiven people. When, when, a, when a Christian acknowledges that Jesus died on the cross for them, something incredible happens. All of our sin, all of our evil deeds, all of the hostility of our minds is put on Jesus at the cross. But that's not the only thing that happens. Christianity is not just about getting a blank slate. The 33 years of sinless perfection, of total obedience to the Father, of caring for the poor, of loving his neighbor... The 33 years of moral perfection that Jesus lived is transferred from Jesus and put on us. And these these words here at the end of verse 22, holy, blameless, above reproach, those are only true of one person, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It can't be true about me. It can't be true about you. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Our sin went on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness was... Gifted to us so that we could be reconciled. We are reconciled by the blood of his cross. So he's the God of creation, and we were created by him and through him and for him. And rather than living for him, we live for ourselves. That's what sin is. It's it's rejecting God's law and rejecting God's love, and we choose to live for ourselves. That's the essence of sin. Created alienation between us and God. God accomplished reconciliation by using human hostility, which put him on a cross, for us to be forgiven. He's the God of creation, he's the God of reconciliation, and then thirdly, he's the God of mission. He's the God of mission. Verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. When a person trusts in Jesus, it's not like, you know, they they just got their, their ticket and, and now they're all set. They just put the ticket in their pocket and they know that, no, no. It, Paul says it, if you continue, it's about following Jesus. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about conforming our entire lives according to the way of Jesus. It says continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. If Jesus is leading us this way, I'm going to stably and steadfastly continue to follow him. I'm not going to wander over here. I'm not going to wander over there. Jesus is going to lead me and I'm going to stick to his path. And I'm going to live in relationship with him that phrase there hope of the gospel gospel just means good news it's the good news that jesus died on the cross so that we could be reconciled that's what he's talking about and this gospel it says has been proclaimed in all of creation it's been proclaimed in all of creation now don't misunderstand this he's not paul is not saying telling everyone about jesus mission accomplished proclaimed there is in the past tense right He's not saying that that the gospel has spread to the very ends of the earth and that every single person has heard about it yet. He's not talking about the extent, the current extent of the distribution. What he's talking about is the universality of the invitation. That it is, it has been proclaimed not just for Jewish people, not just for religious people, not just for people close by, but for people of every tribe and nation and language and tongue. The gospel is for everybody. If you grew up with religious parents or Christian parents... Or didn't grow up with any sort of religiosity in your upbringing or background. Listen, the gospel is for you. The message of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation, it, it's for you. It's for everybody. It's proclaimed in all of creation. It's amazing that the passage begins with Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, and then he's the firstborn of the dead, which is like the new creation. And then it concludes with this idea of the gospel being proclaimed among all creation. If you scan the passage again, you're going to see the word all repeated. over All things. Everything. All, 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 all. And you're also going to see the word he again and again. He and all. He and everything. Because it's all about him. And he has called us to be on mission. He told his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's the God of creation. He's the God of reconciliation. He's the God of mission, that when we go out, we don't go out on our own. We go out with Jesus. Jesus. And so the aim of this series is just to simply remind us or to tell us for the first time that Jesus needs to be at the center. That Jesus needs to be at uh, the center. Let me, let me show you what I mean. If Jesus is at the center, we can go to the next slide. If Jesus is at the center, he is going to have us focus on three things. He's going to have us focus on the Word of God. He said, You got to build your house on a rock. He said, The rock was his word. He's gonna tell us to focus on relationships. We've got to love our neighbor. Jesus did all of his ministry in the context with his disciples. It's gonna be relational. And then it's gonna be prayerful because if we're not relying on him, if we're not abiding in him, we're gonna be like a branch that's disconnected from the vine. So as we follow Jesus, we're going to aim to do things biblically and relationally and prayerfully. And as we turn to the Bible and as we engage in relationship with one another and as we pray, we're going to to be looking at these four things that we're already committed to doing here at a church. Worshipping Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Walking with Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Working for Jesus because it's all about Jesus. And witnessing about Jesus because it's all about Jesus. And so this this is the... Kind of the introduction to the series that we're going to be in for the next few weeks. Here's Here's the outline. So next week we're going to look at those three words. Biblically, relationally, and prayerfully. Then we're going to look at the life and the teaching of Jesus. And run that through the filter of worship, walk, work, and witness. The things that we're committed to do as a church. How do we do those things like Jesus would do? How do we do those things in the power that Jesus has promised to us, Then we're going to look at obeying Jesus in, in, in what he commanded about baptism and about communion. Then we're going to look at how we love one another like Jesus by looking at membership and, and church discipline. And then lastly, we're going to look at leading like Jesus. How does Jesus as a shepherd affect the way that elders should shepherd? How does Jesus as a servant shape the way that deacons, which means servant, ought to serve. So this is where we're headed. We're, we're going to take an opportunity right now to, to, to stand up together and, to, uh, and we're going to respond uh, in songs. So let's get on our feet. I'm going to pray for us as we uh, get ready uh, to sing together. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come to you in the name of Jesus. We're we're looking right now for your help over the next several weeks, God. Before our calendars fill up with all of these other commitments, with, with school or with family or with different activities, Lord. We, we want to make sure, Lord, even with church activities, we want to make sure that what we're doing is what you want us to be doing. You are the head. We are the body. It's all about you. It's not about us. It's all about you. It's not about Hope Church. And so we want to recognize and, and respond to all that you are and allow all that you are to shape all that we do. We want to be steadfast. We want to be stable on the path of following you. Not trying to blaze our own trail, but trying to be faithful with what you have entrusted to us. Jesus, we want to worship you in this moment. We want to recognize you. We want to lift our voices. We want to lift our hands. We want to declare that you are the king of all creation and that you are the king of of reconciliation and that you are the king who has sent us on mission. God, we pray for your help and for your grace. We pray that you would meet with us right now as we sing to you and as we respond. God, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.